Hi, I'm Dan Higginson, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Idle Hands podcast, where we hope to discuss and learn more about effective creative process. I'm joined today by the man who will dance exotically for a Hasselblad money, Paul Bentz. Good evening, good evening. How are you this evening, everybody? And music and film photographer, Chris Lopez. Greetings, greetings, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's good to have you here. Sorry, hang on, I'm fluffing this up already. Come on, Higgill. I do a live radio show on uh, Chilton FM. <laughs> do you? I bet it's more yeah. professional than this. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more nerve-wracking, though, when it's live. Is it? Yeah, you can't, it is. yeah, when you can't cut out, it's really, uh, it's quite, quite, uh, it's quite a thing to keep going for two hours, you know. Yeah, yeah, particularly when you get to a point like I just did and you fuck everything right up and you completely uh, well, lose all of the flow. Your career is actually pretty fascinating to me, to be honest with you. Like, before we just dive too deeply into that, though, what what are you filling your time with lately? Uh, not a lot. This, this year's been terrible. It's probably been one of my worst years on record, I reckon, 2021. 2020 was okay, despite the, pandem- the pandemic. But, um, yeah, this year's been quite quite slow. Things are, are looking, you know, looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it has been very slow. So as far as what I've been doing to keep myself busy, I've been uh, testing, I've been doing whatever I can, really. I've been photographing wildlife. I've been doing things that I would never have thought I'd be doing. But it's been, uh, I think that's one of the really important things to keep busy. When, when, Is that uh, predominantly down to the to sort of the lack of gigs? Yeah, for up? me, as a, as a music and film photographer, you know, there's the, those two industries have been hit really hard. So, you know, it's very difficult for the, the music industry, especially with no live gigs going on. What did you find yourself getting up to a lot in the, um, in like last year, last year, 2020? Last year in March. So I was right in the middle of a documentary. Um, we were shooting a, a documentary about Mary Quant, the fashion designer, directed by Sadie Frost. Uh, great crew, really good bunch of people on that. Some really nice uh, interviews going on. And then uh, somebody came on set and said, uh, hey, guys, you, you won't be coming back in tomorrow because we're all going into a pandemic. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was very, very strange. It was a very weird time for a lot of people. Um, cycling was my salvation, actually. If I, if I hadn't have rediscovered my love for cycling, I think I would have gone mad, you know. Um, I think yeah, everybody's found like solace in the outside in this pandemic. I mean, the outside has become such an important space. Just absolutely cooped up in in our home prisons, and it just just you could the, the weather in the first lockdown was incredible, wasn't it? Like the sun was out. It felt like it felt like uh, I don't. I know. have I have to say I, I did get quite drunk a lot and sit in the garden, <laughs> <laughs> sit in the garden and. It was great, you know. To at the very beginning, you know, it was a, it was a quite a bizarre situation. It felt it really felt like we were in the film or something, you know. Um, it was really weird, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really weird, weird, you know. But then I, I soon realised that that wasn't doing me any good, and so the bike became a bit of a salvation for me, and also the camera as well. You know, going out on long walks and just, you know, getting back in touch with nature, I think was a really big part for a lot of people, you know. I think that's been something that myself and Paul have, have both done as well. You end up taking photos of things that you wouldn't necessarily have ever thought you would be remotely interested in before, and suddenly they become a lot more fascinating just because your, yeah. your main, your main, your heart that you would have had with your music and your film 
has just literally just dried up overnight. Dropped out, yeah, the bottom dropped out of that. So, And, and for me, I think especially it, it became a bit of a, a rekindling of something that I used to do. You know, I used to sit in the garden when I was about 10 and draw birds out of the Reader's Digest books. And I'd sit there for hours just drawing birds. And over lockdown, you know, where we are, we've got red kites everywhere and some amazing wildlife and we've got deer and all sorts. And I, I, I you know... Short of uh, creating a hide in that garden, I, I've been out there a lot, you know, <laughs> so I've really enjoyed it. So, Lopez, tell us a little bit about your background, how it all started for you. Okay, so I have been shooting for about 30 years now. Um, and in the late 80s, um, you know, I, I, I took inspiration from a keen amateur father photographer who was, you know, he was he was a keen amateur, I had a good Olympus OM kit that I used to nick when he wasn't looking and go out and shoot a few <laughs> rolls of film um and also my dad's cousin was a really keen photographer and he collected a, a whole weekly magazine called photo weekly in the 80s and he collected every volume you put them in the binder you know it was advertised on tv it was one of those typical things and uh yeah he passed over to me these four volumes of, of albums that he'd collected for four years and uh, in that, I could just see amazing photographs that I fell in love with. And uh, from there, I, uh, I decided, you know, that was something I, I really loved and, and had a real passion for. I was actually working when I left college. I was doing art and design at college. And then I left to do software, computer maintenance um, and <clears throat> selling contracts for computer maintenance companies. And, and I really, you know, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. Um, and I, I decided photography was my passion and I gave up a pretty good salary with a company car at the time to, you know, I think I was about 20 years old. And I, I wrote to all the studios in the area, probably, I don't know, 15 commercial photographic studios in the area. And um, one of them, you know, I think the guy, the assistant in the studio, they had three assistants at Hamilton Studios. And Greg, had, one of the guys, had handed his notice in that day when my letter arrived saying, look, I'm going to give up a 20, year, 20 grand a year salary to come and work for 80 quid a week, sweep the floor and make the tea and learn the trade. So that was the start of it. I became an assistant in, I think it was about 86, something like that. What were they 89. shooting at Hamilton's? So Hamilton's was a big commercial studio. We did, we were really lucky, actually. We did, we had two... 10,000 square foot studios, almost as big as film sets, film studios, you know, big units. And then opposite, there was a processing lab as well. So they processed all the film for all of the photographers within the area. Um, and then the two studios, we did room sets for G-Plan furniture. We had, um, we used to do uh, uh, hoopers, with the, they make the stretch limos for the Queen. So we had all these amazing cars. We did Surrey Harley Davidson. You know, we, we did a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Really, it was um, a lot of computers with the old starbursts on the edge of the screen. And you know, back then it was all film, so everything was done in a particular way. Um, and it was great because we had the lab opposite. You know, there was none of this sort of waiting for hours to get your film back. You know, you could do a clip test and have it back in an hour and twenty minutes. Um, so yeah. Do you find for, yourself still shooting like that? Because I'm guessing back then you would have had to make sure that everything's pretty much right in camera. There's probably a lot more pre-planning than you would do maybe nowadays. Yeah, I mean, 
<clears throat> that was the days of Polaroid. So you'd always shoot your Polaroid and get your exposure roughly right. And then you might bracket your film half a stop either side or a quarter of a stop either side, depending on how precise you needed to be. I mean, if you, you know, after a few years of doing it, you got pretty good at it and you'd know, you know, roughly, you'd, you'd get it right straight away, really. Um, but no, we don't shoot like that anymore. I, I, I miss the, the anticipation of film. You know, I miss I miss the excitement of shooting a roll of film and then taking it to the lab and you wait for your contact shoot. You know, it may be two and a half hours, three hours to get your, sh- your sheet back. But, you know, that those two and a half hours were, were exciting. You didn't know what you were going to get. No, no. You know, <laughs> you might not have anything on it at all, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it was either a time you could go off and do another shoot or you could go to the pub and have a drink. Or you could do whatever, you know, there was a, it was a really quite exciting time. Did you stay there for long? Uh, at Hamilton's? Yeah, yeah. So I did, I, at Hamilton's, I was, I mean, I've always been really quite motivated as a person and the other guys that were there, the other assistants were, you know, Greg had been there for about five years, I think, and he left and then came back again. <laughs> so I took, I took his job and then they had to create another one for, to bring him back on because when I came on, we started getting more work and I was pushing for work as well. So I became a junior photographer quite quickly um, and I turned around to the boss, you know, they'd never had a junior position before. They just used to roll through assistants until they went and then get another one, you know, who'd worked for peanuts. But I was like, there is a role here for a junior. And I sort of created the role myself. And then I started shooting for packaging companies and we were doing whiskey cartons and Chanel boxes, but high end stuff, you know, with a waterfall behind on a, on a 10, eight plate camera. Right. So that they were big jobs. Um, yeah, and, and that was great. It sort of brought in a whole new uh, sort of business for the company, really, in a way. And I said to my boss, because I'd made up my mind, all all of my friends around that time, so I'm talking about, we're now in about 1992, all of my friends had come back from these amazing trips abroad and had been travelling for some of them for, for years. Um, and they came back with these amazing pictures, and I was like, oh, my God, I really want to go away. So I said to my girlfriend at the time, I said, look, you know, a year from today, we'll go around the world. And that's exactly what we did. So that last year as a junior wow. photographer, I made enough money to, to go around the world for two years after that. Two years? That's yeah, it was just shy of two years. It was about 18 months, just like 19 months we went we were away for. So oh, was that 93 then? That was 93 into 94, yeah. And I took, um, I took a Nikon F2A, which I've still got somewhere, um and a Mamiya C three thirty. It was a little twin lens reflex camera. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I um I just shot everywhere basically, and I ended up sort of. I think it was about the first six months of going round Australia. This is after Indonesia and and Thailand and all sorts of other places. We got to Australia, and we still had you know quite a healthy amount of money in the bank. Um. So it wasn't until about halfway round Australia that my girlfriend sort of panicked and looked at the bank statement and saw that we had less than half. So she thought we wouldn't be able to get all the way back round. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we just drive faster, you know, <laughs> you don't stop so much, you know. But she panicked a bit. So she went off to work in a fish factory, like in the admin side of this fish factory. In Australia? Yeah, this is, we're in Western Australia. We've been there for about six months at the time. We had a combi van. We'd driven all the way around from Sydney across the Nullarbor Desert to, to Perth. And, uh, you know, she was sat there thinking, what, what shall I do? And 
where I was sat there thinking, what should I do? She's gone to work in a fish factory. You know, I can't just sit at home drinking beer all day. I've got to do something. And I, um, I phoned up the Western Australian Tourist Commission. And uh, I, I, I just, as I was talking to the guy, I just said, look, there must be some areas of national park that you're going to redevelop, you need pictures for. And he, he put me on hold for two minutes and then I came back online and he said, um, yeah, actually, there's this whole area. We're going to redevelop and build a, a new highway through it but we don't have any pictures of the, the area. So can you go off for 10 days and shoot the area? And I was like, yeah, great. You know, I went off with my mate. We packed up the van, filled it with beer and equipment and went to this place called Fitzgerald River National Park, which is like a complete wilderness. I've never seen a landscape like it. It was incredible. There was all, the, all this seaweed had come in into this little inlet and grown on dead trees. So they looked like ghosts out of Scream or something. You know, it was like the patterns and the shapes that they made. I pictures of a place just like that. Oh, it was incredible. It was just so eerie. It was like a, um, a horror movie, really. How but did I you came... to ask? Well, I, do you know what? It was a real chance thing. And I think it's, that's the whole thing about, you know, when you're really desperate and you know that what, you know, and it was as I was speaking to the guy, I was thinking, well, there must be areas that you're going to redevelop and you're going to need pictures. So... It just came out and out of the the live conversation as it was as we were talking, you know. And then I got back and I I sold uh, ten shots for two hundred dollars each to ten slides, two and a quarter slides from the Mamiya. Um, and I realised, wow, look, I can make money. You know, this is fantastic. So as we went round Australia, I did the same in the Northern Territories and went to the tourist office, said, hey, I've just been working for Steve down in Western Australia. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know Steve. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm going up a Catherine Gorge in an inflatable rib with two rangers to photograph these new Aboriginal paintings they found in a cave. So <sighs> it, everything, it just led on. And then I made more money. And then I got back to Sydney. I did the same again and sold a picture of the Harbour Bridge with the, with the um, uh, Opera House in the background. And yeah, it's it sort of sh- that experience. It just totally showed me that you can take your camera and you can go anywhere in the world and start making money. You know, it was a it was a revelation. It must have been quite liberating. It was completely. It was such an incredible experience to know. You know, I'd learned the trade in the studio. You know, I'd learned every format of lighting and big old strobe lights, and then we were getting into new LEDs at that point. Um, so I've learned a lot of new, you know, new and old stuff in the film and then digital was coming in. So it was all a crossover, but the, the ability to know or, or the confidence to know that you can go pretty much anywhere and, and start making money with your camera. So all you need is your suitcase and your camera. That's a really great feeling. You know, that's a yeah, really, really good, uh, good, uh, confidence booster, you know? And then when I came back from Australia, I was really fed up and, you know, I, I couldn't get back into life again. As, as it Did you just come straight back from Australia then? Did you not? We, we travelled on the way back. Yeah, we, we travelled on the way back through Indonesia again. And then we were going to go to the States, but uh, we had to come back because of personal reasons for my, my girlfriend. Um, and, um, yeah, it was hard, you know, adjusting to it when I got back. I, was, I ended up, like, picking up a few jobs for Neff Kitchens and, you know, basting a chicken and whacking it in the oven and then lighting it. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> after going around the world and, you know, seeing all these incredible things, it was just not enough for me. 
Well, I said, do you still have those photos? Do you look at them? You still? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, my my Australian negs. I still haven't. I'm still scanning them now. <laughs> that was in '93. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, my my archive is is just. I mean, that was the best thing about pandemic. The pandemic, to be honest, was a, a chance to just take a little nibble out of the weight of the archive because there's so much of it there on film that I I just didn't I was shooting all the time you just don't get a chance to to do it there and then you know I'm gonna ask you I, I was listening to a couple of other photographers who were older than us and they were saying that um what they're going to do with their archives when they you know with their photographs when they pass away I know that's a, I know that's a morbid thought but it's something I like you know what, what you, I'm going to give it to you Paul to sort out <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving yours to I'm giving mine to you dad so you can sort mine out <laughs> it's a nightmare do you know what it's a nightmare I ha- i've actually had this conversation with bill wyman because when i did a job with bill wyman years ago um he has he was told by his sort of psychotherapist or, or doctor or whatever it was at the time he hated flying and so the the, the doctor or this the person said look pick up a camera and every time you get on a plane start shooting because it will take your mind off the process of being afraid of getting on a plane and flying so he has this, Bill Wyman's got this incredible photographic archive of the Rolling Stones of like 150,000 images that people have rarely seen or very rarely seen. And I said to him, don't you, whatever you do, you cannot leave this for one of your family to sort out. Because if it's anything like my archive, I mean, half of it's not labelled properly. People won't know who it is, the dates, the times and everything. It's like, you know. You know what you need to do, Chris? I got an answer for you. Get Roman over. Get Roma over, <laughs> yeah, yeah or, just, or, or just burn it all. I was going to do that. As a, I was going to do that as an art installation, like the KLF burn that million pounds. I was yeah, burn, burn all my negatives. No, do not do <laughs> yeah. that. No, please. Yeah. No, I won't. But you know, it was a, it was a, an idea. <laughs> we might have the same sort of punk background because that was my first. <laughs> that was my first thought as well. Yeah, yeah. Just doing yeah. it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a big burden, you know. I mean, I'm getting through it now. And actually, you know, this whole process, again, has been has been fantastic because I've been finding images that, you know, I, I you crop it different. You just look at it in such a different way after all this time. Yeah. And and now, and now you can whack it into, you know, a, a package or and, and add things and do stuff. That's what I was going to say to you, like the passing of time. How, how, how does that change how you feel about the images? it's funny actually because i think you go through waves of in during time you know at the time you think oh my god this is so shit and or whatever and then you know years later especially recently in the last sort of five five years there's been a a, a revival of lots of bands and lots of stuff that happened years ago that you know you, you didn't think at the time was particularly Gonna grow, you know it was great or whatever but you know it comes around and it has full circle i mean every image is, is important to someone isn't it really have you found yeah. that your your eye has changed much because i know a much much smaller scale right but i've recently in the last couple of days i've been going back through my old family photos mm. and i guess maybe they go back six seven maybe eight years or so and i had this perception that everything from eight years ago was going to be just utter fucking rubbish but actually when i looked back for it there were some things in there that maybe i didn't that wouldn't have been keepers at the time but actually looking mm. back at it now i can kind of see yeah, that. Actually, my, my my style hasn't really changed that much 
Do you yeah. find the same thing? Or I, I, yeah, I don't think the style particularly has changed that much, but definitely the eye. When you look back years later, you see you might see something different because your eye has changed. You know, and that's not through your composition; that's through your reading or your, you know, your, the way you look at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did a, an image recently of uh, from a One Direction um, concert, and the actual original frame is portrait, and then you've got a few girls at the front trying to scream and hold harry styles legs but then i you know and i never picked that shot originally i just looked at it and thought oh it's a bit bit lame but then i've recently i've cropped it in put um landscape across the top so it's just his body with the mic just sort of halfway down a lot of space off to one side and it's it's beautiful it's like i've never seen that really before you know mm-hmm. I, I i look i glanced at it before i never really appreciated what a shot that is so, you know, I think time is a great thing, really, just to have to go back over stuff like that. I feel like, I feel like we might have sort of jumped over a couple of bits because um, when we left you before, you'd got back from your, your travels yeah. and you were basting a chicken. Yeah, yeah. Um, in so Chile. I, I, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm guessing at some point between yeah. or some point after the chicken. So after the, after, yeah, after the uh, Neff chicken episode, I... Um, I got itchy feet and I, I used to subscribe to the, as most photographers did at the time, I used to subscribe to the British Journal of Photography, which was our Bible, our weekly Bible. Um, and then uh, I read an article about a photographer who was on expedition with Rally, in, Rally International in Belize. And he was the expedition photographer. And I read this article and I thought, wow, that sounds really right up my street. I could do with a bit of that again. And I phoned up the uh, the reception and they put me through to this lady. And the first thing she said is, I don't suppose you speak Spanish, do you? Um, and I said, yeah, I'm half Spanish. And the uh, the photographer who was booked to go on the winter expedition that been about three weeks after that phone call, um, he had pulled out. So I did a really intense week training down in some army camp, <laughs> which I wasn't really very sure about. <laughs> I'm a bit, a bit of a hippie at heart, so it was a bit of a shock to the system when someone's banging a mess tin at three o'clock in the morning and oh. giving you coordinates to go and find your breakfast. You know, it's like, um, <laughs> not, not really sure if I'm cut out for this, but it was. That's um, how Paul it was, wakes up his kids. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was an incredible experience, and yeah, I went off and I was in Chile three weeks later in southern Chile minus twenty at some points. It was, it was incredibly cold, climbing mountains and doing stuff with the local community and and uh, wildlife and all of that sort of stuff and it was it was incredible 118 to 25 year olds there's about 100 staff you know ex- uh, mountain climbers and nurses and all sorts of comms people and um yeah it was it was almost a, as intense as going away for 19 months traveling around the world in three months it was it was incredibly intense wow um yeah and that was so i was an expedition photographer there and then i came back and i had when i went on that expedition i took the one of the first digital video cameras it was a panasonic dv5 i think it was called um and it shot mini little mini dv tapes so i did a little film over the whole three months of the expedition and that wasn't part of my job i just thought it would be a really amazing thing yeah, amazing thing to capture for everybody on the expedition. I, I was thinking I was going to sell everybody a copy <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> for like 20 quid each, 135 people. Yeah, it pays for the camera. You know, that, that was in my head what I, 
what I thought. But then when I got back and I put it together, we had a really good little film. So I went to Channel 4 with it and said, look, you know, I think Big Brother had just started to come out or something around that. It had been out for a year or something. Right, okay. And I, and I was like, forget Big Brother. You, you put 118 20 to 25-year-olds, some from social services in Glasgow and some from Oxford and Cambridge University. You throw them all together in the mountains in the Andes and see what happens. It's it's a show. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, so they, they were really keen. Uh, Channel 4 were really keen to send me back with the whole film crew. Um, and I, um, at that point, I read another article in the British Journal of Photography uh, about, uh, well, it was a classified uh, job advert for Sony Music to be their in-house photographer. And the headline read, we want you to shoot our artists. Um, and then it was just bullet points, list of album covers, you know, signings, install PAs, touring gigs, da 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 whole list of things. And I was like, that's what I'd like to do, really. You know, that would be my thing. You know, when I was at Hamilton's years before that, I I, um, I shot a lot of friends in bands that all my mates were in bands. So we did a lot of band shoots in the... Uh, I even had a band set up there with all the PA and everything all through the weekend playing. <laughs> Loads of complaints from the neighbours. But it was brilliant. And so, yeah, that was a big part of it, the music. So that really was my dream job, to to see this advert in in the... Uh, in the BJP again. How did you land the gig? I, I just applied for the advert and I, it was right. It, I think they'd already advertised it for a month. So that I think there were two days left on the closing for the application. And I phoned up the, the HR people and I said, look, I'd like to apply for the job. And they said, okay, bring your portfolio down. Here's the, the rear reception of the building. Just drop it off there. And I walked in and, um, you know, I got my portfolio together as best as I could. I didn't think it was great. I thought it was, I, di- I didn't think I had a chance in the world, to be honest. And when I walked into the rear reception, literally, no joke, there were 300 portfolios from floor to ceiling. On the, and they went, <laughs> just chuck it on top of there. <laughs> so I literally got my book and just threw it up on top of this massive pile of portfolios. I mean, some of them were just incredible leather bound, big books and stuff. So I, I sort of dismissed it, really. I just threw it on top and thought, oh, no way I'm going to hear this. But, I, you know, hear from them. But I think, I don't know, maybe my boss was just lazy and just picked the first one off the top of the pile. <laughs> <laughs> who knows, man? Who knows? That's bad. Um, yeah, who knows? And then and then I got the job. I got offered the job. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was incredible. And, I, you know, even when I had the second interview with my boss, who was... Uh, Gary Farrow was the vice president of communications for Sony Music. So I reported to him. Um, he, you know, he said to me in the interview, he said, well, if you can, if you can handle an expedition and do stuff like that, you can handle the job here. And, uh, and I think that's why they took me on really because of that. And I had a few, a lot of, well, quite a few band stuff that I'd put into the book to make it look more, you know, in keeping with the job I was going for. And in, in my pocket, theoretically, I had a ticket from Channel 4 to go back to Chile with the next with a whole camera crew to film the next winter expedition for, for Rally. So I think that gave me a bit of confidence in the interview process, definitely. I was I was quite, you know, short of putting my feet up on his table. I was quite confident. I got a word for you, Chris. It seems like serendipity. Like luck has followed you. You've had a bit of good luck. But do you know what? It's really funny, isn't it? You, you never, you've just got to believe in it, really, I think. 
you know, I always believed that I'd, Confident, I'd, right? yeah, I'd end up doing something that wasn't the nine to five. I didn't want to work for the man. I hated, I hated the idea of that. You know? <laughs> and I still do. Don't work for the man, people. Were you a skater as well? Was, am, I, am I right in thinking you did it was a bit of a skater in your youth? In I did book. a bit of skating years ago and all of that, BMXing. And, you know, the, the subcultures that I grew up in, I think, probably did sort of inform me as to do shooting music later on in life because mm. we, we it was intense for us when we were growing up. Growing up through the 70s, you know, you had the punks, mods, skins, you know, then we had all the rave scene and the dancing. You know, we went through so many little subcultures in in a short time that it. Uh, I think that sort of informed you, you know, because everything changed very quickly. You know, it went from blondie to, you know, tracksuits and hip hop and stuff. So, how old were you when you started at Sony Music? Uh, so I started at Sony in, when did I start? 1998. So I must have been, what was I, 24, 20, no, 26. 26, that's yeah, that's 26. 26. And yeah. you just, kind of this world opened up in front of you, right? Yeah, did it was, you, it was my dream. You, it was my dream job. Do you know? know what you were going to expect? Did you have any idea of what? Was <clears> no, 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 no. I, I can tell you what happened on my first day. Cause it was, it was quite a funny situation where I, I walk into this studio I hadn't even seen the studio on the second interview so she they'd all talked to me about this big studio but nobody had said and you know I don't think nobody could get me in there <laughs> the last photographer I took over from Mark Baker and you know I think I, I was it was definitely uh, an incredible position because you know everybody's from 19 I think it was 1974 Sony employed their first photographer and there's only been four of us since then so the first one was Tom Sheehan and then Terry Lott and then Mark Baker and then me. And and you can tell over all of that time that they held the position for quite a long time. So I was there for eight years. Mark was there for about 13 years, I think. And the guy before was 11 years and Tom was there for a few years. So, you know, it showed you how brilliant a position it was. Um, and on the first day I get in there, I walk into this studio. I'm show, being shown around by my boss's PA, who was frightfully posh. And... Um, <laughs> she shows me around she's like I don't know what this does or anything you know and I'm like oh my god it's like a huge studio with a Conrad leather suite in it and colorama <laughs> rolls and poly boards and lights and a big you know filing cabinet and everything and a kit cupboard to a safe and I had everything a dark room everything I needed um and then she goes over to the phone and she looks at the phone and she's like uh, oh Chris this is disgusting and she picks it up with two fingers you know she's it's up to her ear and she's like facilities can you get a new phone up here please this one's disgusting it's full of hashish <laughs> <laughs> that, that was like what the world i was going into you know i sort of realized that this is pretty cool you know this isn't your normal job here and it really wasn't from that day on it was just just i can't even you know go up I mean, it's just ridiculous man. i had such a ball at that company it was brilliant and I was the last, the last in-house photographer worldwide for any major label. That's insane, That's isn't it? Yeah. I even went to Sony, to Madison Square Gardens, and, and went in there just going, hi, I'm Chris from Sony. Um, I've come to meet my counterpart in New York, but there wasn't one because they didn't have one. So. What, what made it all change then, Chris? What was the thing that, why, why was there no more in-house? What was the thing that made in-house photographers a thing of the past? What was I the... think it's, uh, it's down to money, isn't it, really, and headcount at the end of the day. 
you know, and the internet was a big part of it. I mean, I, I, I was in my boss's office when they were, you know, the, the British phonographic industry were, were taking Napster to court mm. and spending millions to do so. Um, you know, in my view, unfortunately, they should have got into bed with them and, and sewn it all up, but they didn't. You know, the next day, LimeWire set up and da-da-da. Just, just Actually, different. I got it. I actually blame <clears throat> Daniel. Daniel was a Napster user, weren't you, Dan? I can no. see you pi- pirating all through your teens. <laughs> so downloading we, I'm going to put Chris out of a job. <laughs> we all were, man. Even at Sony, people were doing it because it's the only way you could get hold of tracks quickly. Yeah, know? absolutely. It was crazy. I mean, it was, it was, you know, the whole thing was... a. Uh, um, I think it was a long time coming in that sense. And and at that point, the record companies sort of passed over a lot of the responsibility that was done. So, you know, I was employed to shoot album covers, you know, to save when the bands got down to no money left and they can't afford ranking. I would shoot it because I was in-house and I was free and I had a studio with full of all the gear and I could do everything that ranking could do or, you know, and or anybody else as well. So It's weird, actually. I, I think because... At that point, when Napster was massive, I was in my sort of mid to late teens. And at that point, I was absolutely adamant that I was going to be a musician. I mean, it never worked out because I was actually pretty rubbish. But just because of that, like, I really rebelled against the whole Napster thing. And it's the thing that a lot of my friends were doing. But I just, I refused to do it because I just thought, like, this is fucking over the exact career that I want to get into. So, so no, I... To answer your question, Paul, no, I never did. I I, I carried on buying my CDs <laughs> and my vinyls like a good boy. And I've, as a result, I've got a huge, huge collection. I've got boxes and boxes of the stuff upstairs. Well, you need to put it on the wall behind you. Tell Tanya you're going to dig it out, Dan. It would, <laughs> honestly, there's not enough room on this wall. There's a room next door that's bigger than this one. And the CDs used to be the whole length of the longest wall. Yeah. That was just the CDs. I had I had thousands as well working at Sony. It was ridiculous, but we used I to bet. get them all the, all bet. the time. But I've I've ended up just descaling all that stuff now. I don't have any CDs anymore. It's, no. it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Do you do you remember who who your first act was at Sony that you had to shoot? That must yeah, have stuck gl- with you, right? Gloria Estefan. <laughs> oh my god my mother loves gloria two four six <laughs> yeah, eight. come on yeah. baby tell you love my, me. miami sound machine <laughs> oh, yeah yes, buddy. I, I, I well, was and, and luckily for me because i'm half spanish it's, it was a it was an icebreaker Dream straight job. away yeah i could walk in and go hey cuz what's up in spanish hey, hey gloria <laughs> hey christopher yeah. Yeah. and funnily enough <laughs> funnily enough her what son is that yeah. <laughs> that was like yeah. Chinese. <laughs> yeah, don't don't do the accent. <laughs> yeah, funny enough, her her son was uh, ended up being a good friend of mine, Naive Estefan. He he runs a um, open air cinema in in LA now. That must have been like what what was it like? So Gloria, like walk us through it, like that moment the moment she walks in. That was it was a uh, it, I think it was a signing or a meet and greet. So it's just you know they come into an office and they get photographed with the with the head of whatever for a little story about something you know so it'll be a, a really quick 35 mil shot with a handheld flash on top bosh 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 you know grip and grin we used to call them grip and grin, grin. <laughs> grip and grin yeah everybody hated doing them even you know well i guess the heads of the companies loved it because it massaged their egos but yeah i bet the, the artists used to hate them David Bowie, I shot David Bowie and he, we had, we had a very painful, because it's David Bowie, you know, literally every head of Sony came from all over the world. <laughs> so there's about 50 people to get through after a gig and that's the last thing you want to do after a gig. 
He must have, imagine. That must have been life for him as well. Can you imagine? Oh, it's horrible. You know, you could see, you could feel the pain, you know. But that was part of the job, and, and it does help. You know, you have a picture with those people. You know, the head of Belgium, if you, if you have a picture with him and he puts it on his desk, you know he's probably going to sell 100,000 more albums for you. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's that. It's yeah. that. That's the power of the photograph you know, in such a base level, but that, that's, what, that's what it was about. That's why you did those meet and greets. And for the artist, it was, you know, painful, but very, very uh, needed, really, I guess. And, and when you're somebody like David Bowie, it's just, you know, it can get uh, incredible the number of people involved in those things. I can only yeah. imagine. Did he have a big entourage, Chris? Um, not that big, to be honest, really. I shot him four times. So he did Meltdown in 2004. Um, and that was incredible. And then he did a live webcast around, I think that was 2002. I think it was one of the first, I think Madonna did the first webcast and that went horribly wrong. And so there are people really wary of doing a webcast at that time. And then Bowie did a, a webcast that was actually, it was web sent to cinemas all over the world. So it was more like a, a proper feed rather than relying just on the internet but people could log on to it as well. So you had people at three o'clock in the morning in Australia going to the cinema to, to see this performance at the Riverside Cafe in uh, Riverside Studios in Hammersmith. Right. Did you so, get, yeah. Did you get a chance to actually converse with him or was it? Yeah, like... when, you, when you, only for minutes, you know, you get those minutes where you're waiting for all the people to get organised and sort themselves out. So, you, you know, and I, I did say to him before that massive grip and grin, I said to him, look, this, this is just as painful for me as it is for you, David. So we'll get this done as quickly as possible. Three shots each and I'll move them on. <laughs> you know, I was quite great. I had so much power. <laughs> you know, I bet he was your best mate I, at I, that point, wasn't I, he? I could, I could move over the head of Sony Japan, you know. It's like <laughs> the, the PR woman was, was giving you the nod, you know. And there's certain people like that. There's There's some... You know, the PR people are the ones who've got all the power, really. You know, Paul and I were talking about this the other week, actually. We were talking about music and how there isn't really any other art form that has the ability to move people the same way music does. Like you've, as, as a man that's had to do like album covers and, and kind of every facet of photography within music... How do you approach that? Like, how do you even begin to try and get across the personality of that musician? Yeah, I think if it's, um, I always sit down with somebody for the first, you know, if I've got two hours with somebody or an hour with someone, I just sit down with them straight the first thing, you know, five minutes and just talk to them and I watch them and I observe them and I get the characteristics that the mannerisms and, you know, just how they drop their head or whatever. I'll just observe them thoroughly <laughs> <laughs> and then see what, um, see what I can pull out of that really. And you get a lot of that through talking to people as well. And, you know, and hearing the music, that's always, I think one of the first things is, you know, if I get a, a website inquiry, somebody's just come through the website and they're blind and, you know, I've, I've got no connection with them at all. I have no, then, you know, I always say to them, send me the music over first and let me hear it. And then we go from there. And that's always the, the best way, I think, with musicians, especially, you know. And I, I always thought that, you know, I didn't like doing fashion photography because I, you know, I found models quite vacuous, really. And there wasn't a lot of talk or chat in, in, the, in the shoot, 
and I love talking to an artist about how they made where they recorded it you know what was it like playing that or this or you know there's a lot to talk about whilst you're doing the shoot and I think if that you know you can get a lot of good vibes out of that if you um, conduct it that way have you got any that you sort of remember really fondly where you feel like you did a good job at that yeah most of them really to be honest I, I I I I that's what I strive for you know if I don't get a good shot out of a shoot I'll be quite pissed off you know and that rarely happens where I you know I've had I've had bad shoots but I've still got a good shot out of it if you know what I mean I've, I've, where I haven't particularly got on well with someone or it just didn't gel I mean I, I I'm I think I like to think of myself as the nice guy as opposed to the sort of mm. ranking type I've had people come into the studio and go, oh, my God, that was just such a pleasure to shoot with you rather than Rankin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they've actually said that. Sorry, Rankin, but, you know, everybody does, everybody does it differently. And I don't, I don't knock it because the way he does it, he, get, he gets a, that level of aggression out of people, which is different to the way I do it. You know, I, I, I do seek the inner soul, I guess, you know, and try and get that out of someone. Is that what you're looking for, like, to find this? There's a point, isn't it, when you're photographing somebody where if you give it long enough time that you, you there'll be a moment where their guard is down, where they... Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? The off shot, I mean, the yeah. off shot is, you know, you click once and the sh the, all the lights go off and then they drop their expression and that, that becomes a a real moment, you know. So it's all, I always do the off shot. I always capture a few of those. You know, if, if just to show them that that's what they really look like, they might not like it because they want the whole pout. And the, but you know, sometimes it's uh, it's good to show people what they really like as well. You Did know? you ever have and those you... massively like those those uh, those creative disagreements where they want to do the pout and you're like, do you know what you've got a chance to do something a bit more? Not really, because I, I think you know if somebody's like that, you know that they're going to be like that. So you 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 do allow certain people to dictate you know, to get what they want. I mean, I've had some brilliant ones when I did Re Regina Spectre and at the beginning I'm asking her, you know, so what are you into and stuff? And, and she said, um, what did she say? She said, uh, sticky tape and, uh, and paper clips. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> what did she mean by that? Well, that's what she was into. So, you know, I went off and folded a load of bit of paper and got a whole jar of, of, uh, of paper clips we just started sticking them all over our clothes you know that's where stuff comes from and it was actually a great shot yeah you know, I, was... you just, I think she just threw it in as a wild card you know it's just trying to go as you know flippantly as she could with something but actually ended up being quite cool do you think she was trying to fuck with you like what no I don't think so maybe I don't know maybe I didn't take it that way maybe but I don't think so because it was it was a good shot. You know, we we ended up pinning loads of paper clips with these little envelopes on her shirt, so it looked like she had these unopened letters and stuff. And I don't know, it was quite. A... It sounds like a cool concept. Yeah, and then you got yeah. Terry, Terry Tori Amos who wants to breastfeed a pig. You know, it's like <laughs> where do you where do you that is mad. <laughs> where do you draw the line? <laughs> I I always allow you know if people want to go. With whatever they want to do, <laughs> they want to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, just, just do, bring, in, bring in your pig, Daniel, next week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as long as it's not illegal. <laughs> I, I got an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there used to be a lot more pigs and, and dwarfs and things in shoots, but we don't get away with it anymore. So, yeah, so two PC these days, isn't it? You can't say boo to a goose. 
Well, or a pig. I think the, some of the creative uh, elements have been lost through. Nothing like a good. They still do that in Wales, don't they, Paul? I don't think you can say that. (laughs) (laughs) I just did shit. Oh, dear, oh, dear. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, so where were we? Um, Uh, Pigs and Tori Amos. Oh, dear. Yeah, there you go. So tell yeah. me, like, they must have, like, like, give me a few highlights through your Sony years and pick some moments when you were like... Oh, my God. I mean, you know, I, I did a, a video with Top Loader in LA that was fantastic, that whole four... We had five days because the director of the video had got food poisoning for two days in the middle. So we all had to extend the trip, got thrown out of the Mondrian Hotel at six in the morning and... I had a red Mustang, open top Mustang, hired for the whole week. And you can imagine, I won't go into it, all the sordid details, but it was very <coughs> sordid and very, <laughs> very good fun. Yeah, man, I mean, oh, the clash, you know, uh, I was a Dell's tour photographer in 2010. That was good fun. Um, you know, there's just so many moments. You have to look at my Instagram to, to sort of see the moments and read the, the backstories. I was scrolling up and down your Instagram earlier on and sort of pouring over your website and I love just, Instagram. It just, it just never Insta- ends. Just, uh, yeah, well, there's so much. There's so much more to it as well. That that isn't even touching the size. There's so much more. You got to get you having a retrospective, and we like a Chris Lopez retrospective. How old are you now? You've got to be in you know, 51. I'd yeah. like to do. An, I'd like to do another book. I did the DJs by Lopez in two thousand three. That came out, so I shot that in two thousand and two into 2003 and then nine months printing it and then it came out for, for publication so yeah I, I, that's the last book i did so i'd like to do another one a retrospective would be quite nice no. there, there was one thing on your website that didn't didn't quite fit in with everything else but what it was looked really fascinating and it was uh it was like painted bodies uh, oh right right yeah that was a personal project that i did that was actually related to the music industry. That was for um, Nitin Sawney. I don't know if you... Yeah, his, his, yeah. his daughter is um, Nora Jones, isn't it? No, no, no that's Talvin Singh. Okay, yeah, okay. I will get them yeah. confused. Yeah, Nitin Sawney's a DJ producer guy. He's amazing. He's Mercury Music nominated and he's done film scores and stuff like that. Um, and he did an album called Filter, P-H-I-L-T-E-R or T-R-E. And, and that means in Hindu, I think that means inner light. So they wanted to create this inner light coming from the body. And we ended up doing that as a test shoot for it. Um, they used something else in the end for the cover, but I got I still got paid for it. So but that was, um, yeah, that's black body paint. And then the body's covered in glitter. And mm-hmm. then wherever you shine the lights, it reflects back to the camera lens. So quite a nice, uh, I wish I would have videoed it at the time. We didn't video it, but that and the running man would be great. Mm. it was really amazing i was, I was just sort of you know there, there's some really eclectic work in there and there's like a decent amount of candid stuff and there's some stuff from gigs and there's a there's a whole lot of um like portraiture but i don't know that that just sort of yeah the testing's stood always out. it's always something i've loved doing you know i remember when we had years ago in the studio damien duncan was my one of my old assistants and we'd just sit there go through magazines and go that looks cool. How did they do that? And we'd test it straight away. We'd try and figure out how they did it. So a lot of cross-processing, a lot of gels, a lot of, you know, messing about with stuff. And, and you, 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 
you, those mistakes create some good, um, you know, good ways of doing things. So one of the things I'm noticing, Chris, is that um, I, I'm going to caveat this, and I've known Chris for a long time, so um, is that almost like this versatility is 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 kind of kept you going, like the skill to be able to manoeuvre between, you know, the film and the video and the portraiture world. Like, I imagine to keep motivated and to keep going for 30 years, you need to keep, like, reinventing yourself at different stages of your career. Like, Yeah, I think I think the music thing, naturally, you know, as most, most of it is portraiture because most of the people you're dealing with are musicians, they're human beings, so inevitably it will become portraiture. Yeah, you may get a fridge or a dog on the cover, but, you know, essentially it's people. So that going into film was a natural progression, I think, for me, because... And I, I, you know, I almost touched on it earlier with the with the model thing. I didn't really get off on shooting models. I I did music, acting, and film work is pretty akin to to the music industry. It's very similar, in fact, really. Um, so I that I think that was um you know when the bottom started dropping out of the the music industry, that was a natural progression for me to go into. Um, and you know, it's still portraiture, isn't it? At the end of the day, you're still dealing with people. You know, and I, I, you know, even through lockdown last year, I was doing tonic water bottles for a friend of mine who owns a tonic water company because I couldn't get out and do anything else. And he could send me a, a case of tonic water off over and I could go and shoot them in the woods or buy some daffodils or whatever just to keep me going. And I think that all stems from my very early days at Hamilton shooting products and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm a music and film photographer, but I'm still a photographer, aren't I? Yeah, we're just all, for, and it's we're label, all photographers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know. I was I've always questioned whether labels are helpful in in our industry, like whether you know you're a street photographer, or you're a portrait photographer. When actually to survive, really, I think you need to be lots of different types of photographers, and having as many of those skill sets, I suppose, is yeah. as possible. Is always going to yeah. be a bonus, right? It's I'm not. I'm not scared of shooting a, a super yacht. I've done super yachts in the south of France, or you know, I've done shoots out of helicopters. You know, the bigger the shoot, the the the, the more exciting and challenging it is, really. You know, but I, you know, I'm still a, essentially a portrait photographer. That's what I do, and that's what I still love doing. You know, I still after 30 years, it's not difficult to find the motivation to do it. Mm. It's finding the work that's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the work's yeah. difficult. So not the motivation you know at the point that you left sony and you went into more film and 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 that kind of stuff did you did you find that it sounds like the transition was easy technically for you but was it was it easy to get the doors open or no the transition took a while actually and when i left sony um sony merged with bmg and bmg had never had an in-house photographer so I took I took voluntary redundancy, and and that's when that role as the staff photographer for a major label ended. Um, you know, to be honest, now I think they should have the the the, the role back. You know, it'd be quite beneficial for a lot of companies to have that role because I think if they mm. did look at their their bottom line and what they're spending for free, with freelancers on a photographic level, especially somebody like that Sony or a big Universal or whoever a big company like that, then I think they could warrant the cost again um because then they have the ownership on it and everything which is that's what we're talking about now and i was going to say to you do you think that's like i i I, when you say like they got rid of it for financial reasons and headcount i I think it's almost really short-sighted isn't it in that 
Yeah, like it I think, cost them more in the long run by hiring freelancers. And well, they lose. It, it, it was at the time. I think now with space rate, editorial space rate, and the fact that the syndication value has dropped so much now. You know, if you want to buy an image from Getty, you know, it's, it used to be four hundred quid or four grand, and now it's forty quid to use it. So, you know, I think there's a lot of the market in that sense bottomed out again. You know, so I think really there is the the importance of having it in house to be able to service your own needs as opposed to, you know, s- offset those onto a client or whatever. Um, but I yeah, when I when they merged with BMG, I actually um, that's when I set up the the Getty project with Getty Images because I'd set I'd worked at Sony for eight years and I didn't want to see all my images, all the, you know, all of that stuff go into a an iron mountain storage facility and, and never be seen again. So I sent an image to an email to Getty. I think I was, I was one of the last people in the, in the building at Sony before they left. I was clinging on to that studio for dear life. <laughs> it was me and the security people were actually the last ones out. I um, can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It, Cause it really was the end of a bubble. You know, it was the end of an era for me. It was, it was definitely, um, I was excited to go and be freelance and, and I had enough money to be able to go and do that from the redundancy. Um, but at the time, yeah, I did that, that, email to Getty and then I ended up getting paid by Sony for three days a week to archive all of the film stuff from before so and that was based at the Holton archive at Getty at the time I was living in Kensal Rise so that was in Westbourne Grove it was like two miles away I could cycle down for three days a week and that was great really that that kept things going whilst I was setting up my own thing and then I could go off and work for Universal and all the other people and then at that time I started getting more and more into film and TV stuff. And then uh, that that's why that transition took a few years after that before I sort of now, you know, I'll probably do two or three feature films a year and then a mix of music stuff in between. And I'll produce other stuff that goes on, you know, as well. I do, we did a big um, shoot for Verizon via Momentum at the beginning of the year, um, beginning of last year. That was quite a big setup with a live crew and five camera crew and, uh, two photographers so yeah a bit of commercial stuff in there as well when when it comes up and i tend to do the more production on that and i'll produce it and rather than shoot yeah so you don't you don't pick up the camera then when it comes to that stuff um if it's big like that and it's intense i'd, I'd rather just you know i'd rather put people onto it really it's um it's a lot more i can schmooze the client then Drink yeah. champagne in the back. <laughs> all the problem solving. Eating yeah. lobster. Yeah, drink champagne and eat lobster whilst everyone else is running around. I mean, I still, I did a big festival, was it last year, in Boom, in Belgium. A big EDM festival called Tomorrowland. So Chris, I got, I got another question for you, mate. Um, so if your, your son comes up to you next week and says, Dad, I think I want to be a photographer, what would you say to him? Uh... He has done actually, funnily enough. Has yeah, he? he he did about a year ago, and I said, "Well, maybe if he's got a good eye and he wants to do it, you know, only because he can work off the back of my name." But if it was anybody else, I'd say, "No bother." <laughs> <laughs> it's too hard. It's too hard, but, isn't it? Yeah, but he could. Uh, he's he's got something he can work off the back of. You see, so that's a bit different. That's nepotism, isn't it? Really? Do you, you know? do you think? I mean, we were talking about the bubble bursting earlier and like potentially whether or not that was short-sighted. 
with with social media being the way it is and there's this like huge demand for things to just consume people aren't necessarily worried about quality nowadays they're just more worried about the quantity mm. do, do you think it is possible do you think can, can you see a world where we do go back to something like an in-house photographer at one of these bigger labels or, or do you uh, think it yeah. will stay just with lots and lots of um like freelancers just working for peanuts i don't think it would you know my my role as a in-house photographer didn't stop the fact that there were still thousands of covers shot by freelancers because there was too much work to be done by one person so but i think it definitely would be beneficial for the for the organization to have a person in-house doing all of that stuff you know it was it and it, it meant you were trusted and integrated into the company everybody knew me at, at sony music for those eight years that i was there um you know i mean people didn't even know who the, who worked above them on the next floor whereas i i would work for everybody so i i was often mm putting people together and saying, oh, you should speak to so-and-so. And, you know, that's how it works. I, I definitely um, embraced the role, you know. Um, you know, and I loved it. I did, I did, all I wanted to get out of it really was covers, was CD covers. That was my thing. I just wanted to shoot out. I loved album covers when I was younger. And I, I really wanted to, you know, immortalise my work in a cover. I think it's amazing. Yeah, well, going into film work now is the same thing. All I want out of the film really is the film poster because I love film posters as well. So it's it's a, almost quite a, a direct sort of thing for me. You know, it seems to be uh, an obvious choice, really. I think there's like a real passion and, and because you love what you do, it, 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 it's it's sometimes been really easy. And then I imagine after leaving Sony and then you're like into this world of freelancers, like, ah, my God, what am I going to do? And yeah. how, how long, how long like did you have between leaving and settling into it? Like, was it, was it easy going or was it, is, was it like really To difficult? be honest, I think it was uh, the, personally, I was getting divorced as well at the time. So it was really hard. You know, the whole, the whole bubble was really bursting, you know, on, on many levels. But the fact that I, I had the thing with Getty that was keeping me going three days a week was was great. You know, that gave me enough to carry on and set up my business and punt for work. And and after, you know, 10 years or, or eight years at Sony and another two years doing the Getty project, that was enough where, you know, the, the music industry is quite small. So a lot of the people that I worked with at Sony then went off to work for Warners or EMI or Universal or Virgin. And and so they started calling me in for work, and then it all sort of yeah, we didn't, didn't really take too long to get set up. My first few years out of Sony were quite good actually, um, and then it was like okay, what happens next? You know, where do I go? And being in London, I did I did rent a studio for about the first six months in in Soho, and that just that I really soon realised that was a big mistake. <laughs> the amount of money that just I was just. It was just somewhere to go and get pissed every day. It was ridiculous. <laughs> you could do that at home, you know. It does sound like you're incredibly good at getting that initial momentum going to 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 start a project. Like you, you seem to be quite good at this kind of leap of faith type thing, where you're, you know, it's, I'm just thinking back through our conversation where you said uh, we're, we're going to set a date one year today. We're going to go traveling and. Mm. You bloody did it. Yeah. You know, well, right? it's the same with the, with the book, how the book project happened as well. It was exactly the same thing. I was trying to work out 
I had 10, I'd shot 10 DJs, quite big DJs. And I was trying to work out which one to put in my portfolio, which page to take out and put which one of these was I going to put in. And when I had the, the 10 laid out on the floor, all 11 by 14 prints, you know, I looked down and I thought, well, if I do 100, that's a book, it's a coffee table book. And that was it. As soon as I got it in my head, the next day I'm compiling this list of 100 DJs, sending out word everywhere. And then, yeah, that, that became a physical book and then went in the National Portrait Gallery as a result of that. I had 21 images in the, in the MPG. So, you know, you just, I think, I, and I've got, that's not, you know, so many other stories like that. The Beach Hut project, when I moved down to Bournemouth, I, I did 100 portraits of people in their beach huts because I just found it fascinating, this whole culture of, it's fascinating, isn't it? With a, with a blanket over your knee and an anorak because it's freezing cold and pissing with rain, but you're still there. <laughs> you know? Are you still in Bournemouth um, now? Is that is that where you're based? No, I, I, I lived there for about six years and then I'm back up in near town now in Buckinghamshire. But I loved it. Bournemouth was fascinating. I loved it. it was a, and that, that little project that I did was incredible. It was a great way to get to meet people and integrate yourself into a new town and I got you know, hear, hear people's life's history within 10 minutes. You know? I got another question for you, Chris. It, it seems like your work has been predominantly like commercial work, right? So you've been paid for commissioned for what yeah. you do. But it seems like there's these moments where these, the personal projects have kind of, um, I don't know, sifted through. And, yeah. and, and I suppose, is, is, is the personal work as important to you as the commission work? Would you think when you look back at, at the end of your career and you're looking through the work that you've done, which yeah, one do you think absolutely. will resonate? You think well, I think, will... I think the commercial work will, will resonate because of, probably because of the subject matter, yeah. really. But the personal work is always, I mean, whenever I go and have a look at another photographer's website and they've got a personal projects page, I always have a look at that first <laughs> before I go into the portfolio because I think that really gives them, a, it gives you an essence of what, what they do and, you know, what they're about, really. Well, I think that's um, a really interesting point, isn't it? Like the personal work, is is uh, for me it's always been the bit that drives the commercial the commission yeah. stuff you know and unfortunately I, i've got a bigger book of ideas for personal projects and stuff that that never came to fruition than or the ones that always did you know like the book idea or whatever that there's 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 a massive list of other things that i've written out that i'd still like to go away and shoot you know but often it, that's how it happens you know when i found i found my mate just gave me an old parachute once with a hole in it he's you know, he's like, whatever you do, don't jump out of a plane with it. But in the studio, when you blow it up with two wind machines, it looks wicked. And that was, an, <laughs> that, was another, that was another shoot that just came out of nothing. You know, somebody gave me something and I thought, yeah, this would be good. And that's how we test, isn't it? I guess that's what, that's what I was saying at the beginning. That you, I think testing is so important. And, you know, shooting what you love can only, can only result in good things. Really. I was saying earlier about, you know, you kind of land on your feet and you're good at getting that momentum started. I think actually that might be a better way of putting it. You're good at making yeah. something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been doing it recently actually because of the, the pandemic again, I've been scratching my heel, you know, scratching my head going, what the hell am I going to do? And so recently I came up with, and we touched on it earlier, Paul, a retrospective book, but for Sony music. So I go back through their archives from 1974 and there's some amazing images of the Jackson five and Dylan and, you know, Springsteen and Bowie and all the way through to modern modern artists. Um, and it would be a really good project to do. So I, I 
put that forward to Sony recently is a, it's another pitch. You know, I'm constantly pitching, hoping that something's going to land. You know, and and it will. More balls you throw up in the air. One of them, you've got to catch one of them. In the plates, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you you can't wait for people to come up with these ideas. You know, if you've got a really good strong idea. And I think that's it. I think a, a lot of a lot of us are, are frightened of this idea of pitching your idea to somebody. Like it's like it's yeah. like a foreign thing, but actually. I did it years ago, I remember, with a friend who was in an advertising company and we, we all had young kids at the time. And he was, Smarties was one of his accounts. So on a Sunday, we got all our kids together and literally painted them orange, yellow, blue. The kids. Each, yeah, each kid from head to toe was painted a different colour. And they were cute kids. And you, you, you know, My daughter was yellow and my son was orange, I think. And there's another kid who's blue and purple, you know, from the colours of the Smarties. Blue's the best colour. And then we sent it off to them and they thought, no, we can't use it because parents might think that we're going to turn their kids that colour. <laughs> like, oh, God, you've got to be really stupid to think that. But yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> the but paint's going to take days to come out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. I'm, I'm going to go and paint my kids this weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that was just another test. So, you know, I think you've got to, you've got to keep those juices flowing all the time. Otherwise, you, we go stagnant. Have you got any other really great, I don't want to call them failures because they're obviously, you know, they're, they're all a story, right? And they all lead to a success somewhere. But have you got any other really great ones where you sort of, something like the Smarties where you just tried something and it just didn't land for whatever reason? Uh, I've got a great failure. I've got a great oh, not failure. Really. I have put a few ideas. I mean, I've done shoots where things have gone wrong, where we, we dropped a, uh, a flat on the back of a car once and stuff like that. <laughs> a flat? No, a, 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 as in a, a, a wall with a window in it. Of, like We call them flats. Right. So it would be a, uh, with an A-brace, on the, an A-frame on the back. You build them in the studio so it looks like a, a side of a wall or, or a window. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we were trying to get something out from from all these flats that were leaned up against the side and there were some polyboards behind or something. And I was working with an old photographer called Tony Rocco. He's passed away now but um and he just yanked the end of one of these boards and the whole flat with this window in it. it's like three four ten by four foot boards all joined together with a window in it just leant over and just crashed on the back of this Rolls Royce but anyway, <laughs> I've had many things like that happen and and loads of assistants have lost loads of my gear over the years but I've never lost anything I've been really lucky I've had stuff come back to me in police, you know, examination bags or exhibit A, you know, bags. What, was police. that the phone from your predecessor at Sony? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've been lucky, really, to be honest. I, I have been, you know, I mean, Christ, we've had, we've done uh, the shoots I did in the south of France with the yachts. One of my assistants left three bags of cameras and lights on the side of the, the port where we get off the big yacht, we get on the little boat, then into a car. He left them on the side where the car was. So we have to offload everything off the plane that we were just about to get on, drive back, and it's still there. Four and a half hours later, there's all my camera gear still on the side of the port where we left it <laughs> with, with fragile tape wrapped, wrapped around it. Did it have to film in it as well from the shoot? Uh, no, I always carry that with me in the bag when I travel. Because back then, well, back then they always said that the X-ray machines could mess up your film which I didn't think it could, but we, we never took chances with that. We always used to carry it separately. But. I can confirm it does. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is it? yeah it well, does. it's a good idea as well, because I mean, even recently, one of my 
my uh, guy, Paul Stevenson, um, he shoots a lot of film stuff. And we were crossing over. So we were in, I was in the Pyrenees on a film called Waiting for Anya. And he was up in Yorkshire on another film called Dark Encounter. And we were going to cross over and change. So I was going to do the rest of Dark Encounter. He was going to go and do the rest of Waiting for Anya. And the airline lost both, both cameras, both camera bags. So luckily he had one body around his neck with one, one uh, lens on it. No clothes, got to the Pyrenees. Imagine getting to a shoot, you've got no clothes, no cameras. <laughs> Just a nightmare. I think he did because it was a World War II film. He spent the rest of the, uh, the, the whole two weeks until he got his clothes back in an SS uniform. <laughs> 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 but, you know, you've got to be careful. It's always good to back it up. I mean, I always, still now to this day, I always, whenever I shoot, I've got two bodies with me no matter what, you know. And I've never had that point where I've failed on the first camera. So, I think it's just years of practice and years of going to gigs with you, you didn't have time to change. If you've got the first three tracks at a gig, you didn't really have time to change the roles that much. So if you had two bodies, you could shoot one black and white, one color right? and two roles. You probably get a third off whilst you're changing the, the third one. You know, I did, I did shoot, I think it was a Macy Gray gig or might've been Lauren Hill where I, I, I think I shot seven roles in the first three tracks which is ridiculous like it's like holding your finger down on the it wasn't even concentrating really what i was doing i was just trying to get as many rolls off as quick as quickly as possible but i'm going to ask a question that we don't often have we don't really talk about on this podcast we never really talk about gear or anything but i am fascinated just because you've had so much experience and i want to try and soak up a little bit of that wisdom if i can You, you said that you still carry two bodies um it, when you're carrying two bodies, what are you on two different focal length primes or is it just redundancy? Like what's, uh, it depends really. It depends on the, what you're shooting. You know, if I'm at um, a festival, I'll probably have a, a 24 on and then a 200, you know, 70 to 200 is a long lens. And then those two lenses pretty much will cover me primes. Then when I know I've got a shot and I want to double it up or be, be more specific or, you know, if I see something from a long distance with a long lens, I might then go in and capture it again on a prime. Portraiture is all primes. You don't bother with the, you know, with that sort of stuff. And then it will be a medium, if I'm medium format. So years ago, I'd shoot a lot of medium format on a Mimir RB. And then now it'll, it'll either be, you know, a GFX like Paul shoots or whatever the system, you know, Hasselblad if the budgets require. If, if they allow, if the budgets allow, then we'll hire it in. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, I mean, it's whatever camera suits the job, isn't it, really? I think there's so many better cameras than, you know, and I, it depends what you shoot. I'm not, I'm not a sports photographer, so I don't really need, you know, the massive long lenses or yeah, stuff yeah. like that, you know. So you, 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 your kit becomes what you shoot, really, I guess. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I, I tend to try and travel light. I don't like to carry too much stuff around. I've got, oh man, I've got to have a neck operation because I've been carrying camera bags for so long. You know, literally two two bodies around your neck. If you're at a big festival or something and you're bouncing around for three days with two cameras around your neck, takes its toll. Quite, yeah, it does takes its toll after thirty years. Dan, Dan, I'm going to pick you up on something. I just noticed in the background of your um, 
flat. It looks like all your camera back is match. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> Have you got um, oh, the grey ones? Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. Um, are you like are you a matching camera bag? No, do you know what? It's kind of happened. <laughs> it wasn't so much accidental. It's just this, uh, whatever the, the, the brand. That, <laughs> did you go so, into the Did you go into the shop and say, "Can I have three grey uh, camera I'm bags?" Boring myself just talking. Don't about be it, drawn into Paul's uh, inane <laughs> questions, Dan. <laughs> They're just good camera bags. They work, and that was that was the color that I went with. But I needed different sizes for different things. Uh, this oh, is actually just yeah, coming back to the point we were just making this is all coming back to the fact that i don't like to carry too much stuff and i feel like if i've got different size bags i can force myself to carry less gear and or only the gear that i need yeah. so anyway that's that's why i've got three different i've always bags. i've always joked with people as i'm sort of you know you're trying to get through a door into into a building and you've got five camera bags around you and cases and lights and everything and tripods and uh they hold the door open for you and i always go God, I can't wait till I can do this on my iPhone. And now <laughs> I think you can, really. We've got to that point where, really, I think we can. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of films and shooting some of the B-roll on my iPhone in a gimbal. There are, and, there are photographers out there that do it, right? Only yeah, yeah there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's is brilliant, you know. So I think we have got to that place that you can travel light. You know, we don't need all the lights and all the gear and all the stuff that we used to think we needed as a fail save, you know, as a backup just in case. Yeah. Well, now your backup is your phone, so you don't need a second body to start with. It is quite nice. I've, I've noticed that I've started to, if I am carrying too much gear, the extra gear is just toys. Like yeah. uh, me and Paul were... were... Well, like, a, like a dildo, you mean? Yeah, just like that. Just like that, Paul. No, me, me and Paul were... We, uh, I was on a shoot with Paul over the weekend, and I took I took my old Hasselblad um, that I had to sort of wrestle Paul to the ground to get back off him. But like it's it's now gotten to the point where you can travel so light that actually you can just take things for the yeah. fun of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's the way it should be, really. You know, going moving forward as well, it, it's becoming you know a lot more disposable, I guess. Really, the you know the work so traveling light is an easier thing to do you know or it's a more sensible thing to do it used to be years ago the more equipment you arrived with the more the more noughts you could stick on the invoice you know if you if you arrived somewhere with 13 light cases and everything that was all the gear that you're hiring so they they, they felt they were spending their money you know you're a big deal yeah if you turn up with it, an iphone <laughs> in a gimbal they're probably gonna laugh aren't they <laughs> <laughs> But now I've got to that point. I'm like, well, fuck it. I can do it like that. If the if the work's good, and you know, it, it's um, the quality of the stuff that you're shooting is good enough. It should be a meritocracy, shouldn't it? Like it should be, it should just be down to the quality of your work. I'm sure it's yeah. not in a lot of in a lot of ways, no. but well, an experience to know what whether it's right to take that, you know, because the client needs to know that you've got 13 bags or not. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. Just a tool, boys. Remember, it's, it's just, just a tool, tool, right? It is. Exactly. It is. I mean, there's lots you can do with different things to give you different techniques and all of that stuff. So, you know, they are, like you say, they're all gadgets that can give you a different look and a feel or whatever, you know. Sometimes you can get stuck in a, in your ways of using the same lights or the same lenses and the same camera sometimes that it's, it's refreshing to, to get a new, yeah, yeah. new tool to play with, you know. Daniel, I think it's that time where we're going to... Um 
do our shout out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you gonna go are you gonna go I I'm gonna I am going to i am going to prep you to go first? I was gonna I was gonna let our guest go first, Paul. If... No, okay. Shout out to who? <laughs> who? Who am I shouting out to? Whoever you want, Chris. This is the idea that, that this week we we basically at the end of it we we choose something that we've seen this week that maybe we'd like. Okay. Any anything well, you there's want. There's a there's a photographer that I met last year on a film that I did called A Bird Flew In. He's a Russian photographer called Sasha Gustav. Um, and you should have a look at his stuff. It's amazing. I've been going through his Instagram of late, and it's very good. So, yeah, mm. there's him. Tony McGee as well is another fashion photographer I met last year from the 60s. But his work's really good. So yeah, shout out to well. those boys. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, this week, Daniel, I'm going to shout out to my friend Daniel Wood at Photo Book Junkies. Um, I've been... But he's basically set up a bookshop where he sells secondhand books and some new ones. And um, I was having a chat with him this week and he, he put me on to this girl called Ellen Burge. It's B-E-R-G-E. And the book is The Awakening. And it's an amazing book. It's, it's just about the feminine awakening. And it's it's like, it's broken into four different segments. And um, yeah, it's miraculously amazing. I look at it and it's one of those books where... Uh, it, it transports you into these young women's and some older women's lives. There's a lot of boobies and bums, but um, it's we. It's just yeah, it's good, really good. I recommend it. Photo book junkies, Ellenberg, the Awakening. Nice, nice, Paul. Uh, right, my shout out this week. God, we're doing photography all round. Um, my shout out this week is Doug Boys. Uh, the book's called All in the Days and Nights. This is one that I'm sort of picking this week because I've, I've spent a little bit of time so far this week picking back through my old family photographs. And, and this is Doug's photographs. And God, I can't remember the date that he started, but this is like everything since I think the 80s. And you literally see some of the people in this kind of growing old. You know, you see his brother growing old and it's just this really amazing work. And all the photos have a, like a really nice still kind of feeling to them. Like the color is just beautiful. It's just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing uh, compilation of like his family history. And it's just really nice to pour over. So, so that, that's my pick this week. Fantastic. We did it. We did it. That, that we're in double we digits it. now, Paul. Oh, that was number 10, Chris. You are our 10th. Uh, honoured. Deeply honoured. Thank you guys for your hospitality. Uh, it was really lovely, man. Thank you very much for listening in and we'll catch you next week. Now for now, brown cow.